Amen. You all can be seated. Uh, you can open up your copy of the Bible uh, to Deuteronomy. We're going to mostly be in Deuteronomy chapter 5 today, but we're going to pick up a few verses from the end of chapter 4 to kind of get our bearings and get up to speed for chapter 5. Um, before we get into this, I want to say just a brief thank you to you um, We uh, about a financial update. Uh, on the back of our programs each week, we try to update you if you note those things with how our, our budget, how our giving is going. And I just want to say thank you thus far. We're one quarter into our fiscal year and we're doing very well uh, because of your generosity. We are above our budget significantly and so we're trying to think of ways to responsibly use that uh, to help uh, do things that need to be done now and to plan even for the future. So I want to say thank you for that. We don't pass around offering plates currently, but if you did want to start giving, we always have offering boxes at the back of the auditorium. There's boxes that are locked back there that you could drop an offering in or you can go to our website. Uh, there's a way to give online there. Uh, but I want to say thank you. That's not lost on me and I know we don't talk about it a lot but I'm grateful for your generosity and your furthering of the mission of God um, by your generosity and so I want to say thanks. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments this morning um, and I came across a quote by a man, I, I don't even know who he is, he's a pastor out in the further west uh, of here named Shane Walker, he was doing a book review, but uh, he wrote this sentence that just stuck in my mind as I was thinking about the Ten Commandments this week. He said, Regrettably, American evangelicals are sometimes known more for their commitment to public displays of the Ten Commandments than to actually obeying them. Uh, whoa. That, that cut to the heart. That, that We rightfully, I think, I'm not going to get into politics, but I think we rightfully advocate for the ability to display the Ten Commandments uh, in different places in our society, but we're often known for that, and little is sometimes known about whether we actually live that out, whether we actually are doing those things that are commanded us, us in those very commandments. I, I think worse yet, though, as an indictment of sorts against us, it, it's not just that we don't obey them, but sometimes I think we don't even know them. Like we advocate for their display. We, we may fight hard for that. We might not even be able to name them. What they even are, let alone know them in such a way that we're actually striving to do them. That we're actually trying to live them out. I think if we were to pull the people in the room, which I'm not going to, but I would guess that most of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments. We might be able to name a majority of them, might be able to name all of them. Uh, we're familiar with them, but I would say that I would also guess that we are fairly unversed in them also, uh, that we may know them, be able to recite them, but we haven't given much time or energy to think about what God's really getting at with them, like what's he actually calling forth from us as his people. Uh, but the Ten Commandments have been, throughout church history, have been really prominent uh, even in the church age, they've been prominently used by churches, by individual Christians to help disciple people. When somebody comes to faith or when there's a child who's born into a family with believing parents, the Ten Commandments have usually been throughout history a core part of how those people were taught, how they were taught what it looks like to actually live as a Christian. And so my hope this morning as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and really the end of 4 into 5 and we read these or you once again start to see uh, that the Ten Commandments are a gift of God to us, even. They're an enduring gift of God to us to be known, 
to be thought about, and to be lived. And so we're going to come to Deuteronomy uh, 4 and 5 here in just a second, but just to catch you up to speed, because I know some of you haven't been here. Uh, we're at a turning point in this book of the Bible. We're going through, we typically go straight through books of the Bible. This is like a turning point in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, this book is kind of like a written treaty between God and his people, as they were about to finally enter the promised land. And treaties back then would often have this introductory section where they would tell the backstory of the parties involved, and then they would move to the, okay, these are how we're going to relate to each other. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'll do. We're at that turning point between that, the history has been reviewed in chapters one through four. Now, through Moses, God is going to start giving law. He's going to start giving rules. This is how I want you to engage with me. This is how I want you to live. So uh, this section that we're going to start today is going to be a majority of the book of Deuteronomy. It's like a long haul. There's going to be a lot of law, a lot of uh, review of the law that God had given. But Moses, this is going to start, we're going to see as I read this, Moses is going to start by reciting the Ten Commandments, by giving that to them again. The, these laws that have been given 40 years prior at Mount Sinai, that's how he's going to start as he starts spelling out the rules of God for his people. So I'm going to read this whole thing. Uh, so settle in, uh, but listen. Uh, uh, try to nudge people if they lose attention, uh, things like that. But I'm going to read from chapter 4, verse 44, all the way to the end of chapter 5. And so in the middle of that is going to be the Ten Commandments themselves, but the things around it are going to help us understand what they mean, why they were given, and what, the, what their significance is to us. So start, get your eyes to Deuteronomy 4, verse 44. That is where I'll begin reading. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make for your, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness... While the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you, You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. This is the word of the Lord. Much to be gleaned from this. I want to briefly summarize what's going on here, uh, lest we we miss it, and then go, go back through and help you see the enduring value of the Ten Commandments for us, even to this day. And then to see, it us that they were beyond the Jordan. So they were on the east side of the Jordan River, having wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And they're finally about to cross that and go into Canaan, go into that land of promise. But they're on the far side of the Jordan, a generation removed from verse 46, like when they had come out of Egypt. That's the end of verse 46. They came out of Egypt 40 years ago. After wandering, now they're ready to go in to the land. And Moses is speaking to this new generation. They have, God's been kind to give them a few military victories on that east side of the Jordan River over King Og and Sihon. He's reminding them of that. Uh, but they're soon going into this land. They're going to need to fight there 
for a while, but ultimately they're going to need to live there, right? And, and God, through Moses, is giving them law about how they are to live once they are in the land. I would point out one thing at verse 1 of chapter 5. Uh, I would note that though this is a written document, Deuteronomy, it was like a written treaty of sorts that we have and can read even today. This was also delivered orally, most of this book, by Moses. So it would have been long talks that he was giving to this whole nation that was assembled. So it's kind of a hybrid for us. It's written to them initially it was spoken. Uh, it says that Moses speaks them in their hearing that day. Uh, so it's a written document, but it was an oral speech or a series of speeches given to them as well. And what Moses does as he starts giving them laws, he points them back to Mount Sinai. He points them back. When he talks about Horeb, you see that word in verse 2 of chapter 5. Whenever you see that, that's talking about the region around Mount Sinai. He's pointing them back to the things God said, the things that God gave them back when they first came out of Egypt at Mount Sinai. And Moses recounts how the Ten Commandments were given to them, right? The first couple verses of chapter 5, he talks about verse 4, how God spoke faithfully face-to-face with Israel out of the midst of fire. But verse 5 is interesting because he, he reminds them back at Sinai, he stood kind of like a mediator between the nation of Israel and God. He says that he stood between the Lord and them. And so there's this wonderful picture of Moses standing between God and his people. He's a mediator of sorts. And then he gets in, starting in verse 6, to these Ten Commandments. We call them the Ten Commandments. If you're wondering where that title comes from, if you just look back at the chapter before, at chapter 4, verse 13, that's where they're explicitly called that. Uh, The Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. That's why we've gotten to use that title to talk about these ten statements, these ten commands of God, the Ten Commandments. And we're going to come back to these. We're going to work through the Ten Commandments in a moment. But I want you to look at the end of today's text, After he has given these Ten Commandments, if you look at verse 22 and down to the end of the chapter, you notice a couple things about the Ten Commandments that I feel like I even grew in my understanding of this week. Uh, We see the uniqueness of the Ten Commandments. Even amongst all the law that was going to follow, the Ten Commandments from the get-go, by God's design, were supposed to be special. They were supposed to be set apart and different from the rest of the law that comes. So, like, if you look at verse 22, for example... Moses said this to this new generation after he just said the Ten Commandments. He said, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and thick darkness with a loud voice. So all the nation heard out loud those Ten Commandments. The rest of it we'll see after that when they become afraid and ask Moses to go up on the mountain to get the rest. The rest of it was Moses being on the mountain and God giving it to him to give to the people. The Ten Commandments were heard audibly by everyone. That's part of why they got fearful. That's part of why they got afraid. So it was unique in that way. The rest of the law was given to them through Moses. This was given directly to them in their own hearing, right? Also, verse 22, the end of 22, a thing that we note is different about these commandments and the rest of the law that's going to come is Moses said that God wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. God did not give all of 
Exodus and Leviticus, all of that on stone tablets. What was on the stone tablets, like was depicted here, which we use in our kids' ministry sometimes, uh, was the Ten Commandments. These initial commandments of God was what God wrote on these stone tablets, which he didn't do for any of the other commandments. And they were, so they were set apart in that way. And, so they were, and then it says, I missed this, right in the middle of verse 22, after he speaks with this loud voice, it says that God added no more. So there was this distinction, there was this break. God spoke these ten words to this nation, then paused. He had written those on the stone tablets, and then the rest of the law is given in a different way. It still comes from God, but they were different. They were set apart from the get-go by God, these ten words, these ten commandments. And I want to point out that I believe, based on this text and many others, that these have enduring value and significance for us even to this day. I'm going to show you a couple of things even in this text that I think hint that way, that these have enduring value, that they weren't just for these ancient people at an ancient time, just at Mount Sinai and just in Canaan, that they are for God's people of every age and all time, all places. So first, look back at verse 3 of chapter 5. This is fascinating. So if you look at verse 3 of chapter 5, remember Moses is talking to people 40 years after Mount Sinai, Right? where all the people who had been 20 and up had died off. And now it's, at best, it's 60-year-olds and down who either had not been alive at Mount Sinai or who had been teenagers or young children. But hear what Moses says in verse 3 of chapter 5. He says, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. So he's saying, if I'm understanding this correctly, that these people who are now alive there on the Jordan, by the bank of the Jordan, about to go into the promised land, he, Moses is saying, God made that covenant even with you. Even if you didn't even exist yet. Even if you don't remember it. If you were a kid, God made this covenant with you. Like you have been entered into, this may sound very strange to us, but you've been entered into a covenant that predates you. Right? Like you, you are part of an agreement that God had with his people before you ever even opted into it, before you were ever even aware of it. You were part of this, uh, this covenant that God was establishing with his people. And I think what we see from that is that we don't have to be the initial recipients of God's revelation to be the rightful recipients of it, right? There's, everything we have in this Bible was written before any of you all existed, before I existed, right? But it is for us. Like the, the words of God, even from of old, are for people ongoingly, right? And so you see even in this text a hint of that. Uh, but Moses also, when you know what's going on here, uh, he is preparing this new... It's not the first time the Ten Commandments appear in the Bible. They, they first were given back in Exodus 20, which you can go and read that account sometime if you'd like to. When Moses gives these Ten Commandments to this generation, he doesn't give it just verbatim. Like there's some nuance, there's some difference, especially with the Sabbath command of how he gives it to them. But what you see as he gives these Ten Commandments then as he gives these laws in the chapters ahead is that Moses is trying to help them understand the law that God gave long ago how to actually live that out in a new situation where they're going to have these foreign nations around them where they're, not, they're going to have property now. They're going to have possessions. They're going to have some freedoms and abilities that they never had when they were in Egypt. And Moses is trying to help prepare them for that. He's taking the old law, helping them to know it, how to live it in a new setting. So he's going to apply it to a new setting 
without altering it, if that makes any sense. Like he's trying to help them get it, understand what God was getting at initially, and then how that works out in your lives now. And God still does that with us today, right? Uh, None of these letters of scripture that we have or writings were written directly to us, but they're written for us. And we can help, we can learn what their original intent was, what the authors were saying, and then help learn how to live that out in a new setting, in a new place. And the Ten Commandments, as you read through the rest of Scripture, you realize that even once Jesus comes, they don't just fade into the background and into oblivion and irrelevance for God's people, right? If you carefully read the New Testament, you'll see that they're actually repeated. Uh, All of them explicitly or implicitly, other than the Sabbath command, are repeated for God's people in the New Covenant, people who are followers of Jesus. Read the last verse of 1 John. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's second commandment, right? Like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount quotes it, which we'll get to in a moment. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Commandment number five, right? You read Romans chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. Paul says that the law can be, and mentions explicitly some of these commands we just read, says that they can be summed up by loving our neighbor and says that we fulfill the law by loving our neighbor. As ourself. And so these things don't just fade into oblivion once Jesus comes. There are still things that we can learn from, that we should be revisiting, that we should see as God's kindness to us, to give us direction, to give us aid to know how we're supposed to live in this life and in this place. And so it has enduring value. There's much more that could be said about that, but these have enduring value even for us today. But I want to take the rest of the time to talk about three surprising features of the law itself, of these Ten Commandments themselves, things that you may have not noticed before, Uh, some things I didn't notice early on in my Christian life, but that are explicit, that are there in the text, and that are important for us. I I was thinking of this, how sometimes we can become so familiar with something, we think we're so familiar with something, and then we realize all of a sudden we don't know it as well as we thought we did. A thing where I've seen that recently is people in my generation on social media media are often uh, showing themselves re-listening to songs that they knew from when they were teenagers and they, they they like start singing along to it and then they were like whoa I did not know I did not realize that was referring to that or I did not know that that lyric said that and it was in their mind like they knew it but they didn't know it like they had heard it but they hadn't noticed things in it and I think the Ten Commandments can be like that for us we may have heard them from since we're little but there's a few really important things that we may totally miss, but that are vitally important to understand why God gave them and how they come to bear on us. And so I'm going I'm to summarize these and show you uh, these under three, three headings, three surprising features about the Ten Commandments. And the first one is going to be this, is that rescue comes before rules. Rescue before rules. Uh, if, I, I point you to verse 6 for this. This is so, so, so important, okay? The commandments, the the rules, start at verse 7, right? God starts speaking at verse 6. So he says something before he tells them something to do, right? He he makes a statement in verse 6. Not a command, but a statement, right? There's a, and I'll read it in a second, but there's this common misunderstanding, I think, that we have as New Testament Christians where we think that God gave the law of the Old Testament to his people in order for them to earn his forgiveness, in order for them to earn his blessing, 
in order for them to earn his kindness, his salvation. But God starts verse 6 by saying this. Before he ever gives a command, before he starts unfolding these ten commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you could read, you, eyeballs could just jump right past that and start, okay, what's, how do the commands start? Verse 7, have no other gods before me. Do not miss verse 6, that before God gives rules, he talks about, he reminds them how he has already rescued them. He, he has already done it, right? God has, you see it here in this text. Like if you look at it, God gave these commands to his people in, in such a way that he didn't intend for them to obey these commands in order to get him to save them, in order to get them, get him to forgive them, in order to get him to show kindness to them and show his power in saving them. He calls forth the obedience to these commands as a response to the rescue he already provided, right? I remember we went through Exodus years and years ago when I first started working here, and I think it was Pastor Larry that preached this equivalent text from Exodus 20, and I remember this being like a light bulb for me to see rescue comes before rules, that, that God saves and then causes people to respond out of obedience or, and to obey out of thankfulness, out of a, a responsiveness to him and what he has done for us. Kevin DeYoung has written, a, a, he's a pastor uh, out east whose church, interestingly, is called Christ Covenant Church. Sometimes our churches get confused. Uh, but uh, he has written a lot about the Ten Commandments, and, and he said, speaking toward this point, he said, that salvation isn't the reward for obedience, Salvation is the reason for obedience. I think that is so good. And we, we are so tempted to get that backwards. We think of our obedience uh, as, as something that merits God to save me, that gets God to save me. But God, even with his people in ancient Israel, was saying, I've already rescued you, so live for me. Like, live the way that I call you to live. And he does the same for us. I'm going to talk much more about Jesus in just a little bit. But I want you to know the good news of Jesus is not that you need. The good news of Jesus is that he has already done all the work to rescue you. That he did it through his life. He did it through his death on the cross. He did it through his resurrection. He has done the work. He provides the rescue for you. And then your life of obedience comes as thankfulness, as a response to that, as an expression of gratitude for the work he has already done for you. And that is so essential. We have to keep telling each other that all the time, speaking that to our hearts over and over and over again because we revert back to the, the opposite way where we start to view my obedience as something to put God in my debt. And God never has related to his people that way. He says, I provide salvation for you, then you live for me. Right? He is not, God is not an employer who is trying to analyze you at an interview. Right? God is not a teacher trying to examine you with a test and give you a passing score or not. God is not a coach who is scrutinizing you at tryouts right? And to evaluate whether you're good enough for his team. God is a savior. Christ is a savior who is freeing you. He is a father who is welcoming you back, not because of anything you do for him, but because he wants you back. 
and because he's provided a savior by whom you can come back to him. That is so vital that we see this is God's heart from the very beginning is that rescue comes before rules. Or rule, uh, another, if you want to use bigger words, you could say liberation before legislation, right? Like he, he frees us and then tells us how to live. He frees us from sin and then calls us to live in righteousness, right? And so we must not try to prove ourselves to God but constantly remind ourselves of the finished work of Jesus. He is the Lord our God who has brought us out of slavery to sin, out of, out of uh, slavery to Satan, out of obedience to him. He has brought us out of that, and therefore we are to live for him, right? So rescue before rules. The second thing, and this is where uh, there's no way we're going to be able to go through every single commandment in detail, but I, I want you to see a, a, maybe a surprising feature of these Ten Commandments that we could miss too is protection underneath prohibition. Prohibition is just for kids is a way when God says, don't do this. Uh, that basically what I'm trying to point out is in these commands that unfold that God gives, uh, God is actually trying to protect us. He's not just trying to say, no, 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 no. Like there is good intent. There's protective intent. He's looking out for our best interest by giving us these prohibitions, by saying, don't do this. So even as you hear these read this morning as you look through these Ten Commandments from verse 7 and on, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to notice that most all of them are framed in the negative, right? Like you shall, like we use Old English a lot, uh, you shall not do this. You shall not do that. You shall not. The one exception uh, or two exceptions is to honor your parents and to observe the Sabbath. But most of these are given negatively. And it can be tempting for us when we first come to the law, when we read it, when we read these commandments, is to think God is just trying to control us. God is just trying to kind of be a killjoy. He's just trying to like test us maybe. Uh, he's just saying, no, don't do that. That's forbidden. Let's see how you do. Uh, but God is up to much more than that, right? Uh, God in giving these commandments is trying to help. Not trying. He is. He's helping his people know how to preserve the freedom that he has given to them. Right? He's trying to help them know, man, I have given you freedom. Doing these things and not doing these other things is the best way to preserve those freedoms. It's the best way to stay free. is by avoiding these things, refusing to do these things. Right? And we know how that works in life. When, if you have a toddler in your house, when you tell a toddler, hey, don't stick this fork in this electrical outlet, right? You're telling them don't stick the fork in the electrical outlet, right? But you're also trying to keep them alive. Like you're trying to make sure they don't know what it's like to have whatever X amount of volts run through their body. Like you, you're telling them no, but, and they might not realize it yet, but it's to protect them. It's to, to preserve their life. When you have a grade schooler in your home or that you're giving counsel to, or a teenager or an adult for that matter, and you tell them, hey, it's probably not good, or if you're a parent, you tell them, do not watch show X or do not listen to this music or this song you're telling them don't watch that don't listen to that but it's for a, a deeper purpose right it's to help protect their mind it's to help make sure they're, they're not starting to subtly think in certain ways or celebrate certain things that shouldn't be celebrated you're, you're trying to protect them by saying no right by, by telling them not to do this 
Kevin DeYoung, who I mentioned before, he uses the analogy I find helpful where he talked about when we order our society, uh, most of you, I think, drove here this morning or were driven here. A few of you may have walked, I know. Um, but uh, most of us drove here or were driven here. And he, he uses the analogy of traffic laws. And he's saying, like, when you're sitting at a red light, you could think of it as, like, Man, I'm just being controlled. I'm just told I can't go through this intersection. It can be frustrating. But there's a bigger purpose than just you, right? Like there's other people driving who need a green light, right? And there's reasons we have stop signs and railroad crossing signs and things like that. The reason that we have those restrictions put upon us isn't just to restrict us. It's to free us, right? For everybody to be able to go where they need to go and to be able to do so safely, ideally. Uh, it's to ensure free and safe passage for everyone. And summing up that point, which I want to show you a few of these uh, from the actual commandments themselves, but, but summing up that point, Kevin DeYoung wrote this. He said, I love this. He said, the Ten Commandments aren't instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for a free people to stay free. And so he, he was trying to say that these rules from God, they're not just about restricting freedom, but preserving it. Like by saying no, God's actually enabling his people to live freer, fuller, better lives if we would do what he says. I want, I want to show you a few at least how some of these commandments actually in saying no to us and commanding certain things to us, God's actually looking out for us. He, he's protecting us. He's making sure that we preserve the freedoms that he has granted to us. I'm going to come back to the first one in just a bit, uh, verse 7. If you start at verse 8, uh, the, the second commandment is, is in verses 8 through 10. Uh, and in the second commandment, God is forbidding them making a carved image, or we summarize it sometimes as don't make an idol for yourself, right? What would God have been protecting them from with that? A lot of idols and carved images. What God is trying to protect them from here is what people would call syncretism. This idea of like blending, trying to blend religions together. This is still a temptation today. It's to blend the Christian gospel, to blend the truth of God with the cultures around us and start thinking of our God in the image of their God, starting to, to bring him down or to merge him together. And even though you may think you are capable of keeping those tensions in place, think about how that impacts in a society, which he's, he's preparing them for. How does that impact your kids who, who start to see these idols, who start to see these tangible things that you say are expressions of God? They're going to slowly start to blur lines between our God, the true God, and the gods of the people around us. And we're gonna, they're going to start to believe that we can make God into what we think he is what we think he should be like. That is a, a thing we need to be protected from. We need to have a reverence for God. And you see that in the third commandment, in verse 11, right? This is where he says to not take his name in vain. There, there's various things that I think that does mean, that, but at minimum, God is trying to protect his people by telling them not to take his name in vain. He's trying to protect them against casualness, I would say, with him which is a huge temptation for us to just start thinking of God as like a buddy or God as someone I can just kind of trivially mention his name. Or I can, in their culture, they might have even been tempted to use his name almost like a magic 
formula to be able to get things that they wanted. Like, I say this in the name of Yahweh and like feel like they can start to make God into something they wield to get what they want. And God is saying, no, like I am not to be trifled with. Like I am not just casual. I am not to be taken for granted. Like I'm your creator. I'm the one who saved you. Show reverence to me. But our hearts are tempted to, to diminish him, to become casual and irreverent even with how we speak of him. Fourth commandment is in verses 12 through 15. This is about the Sabbath day. And he tells them to observe the Sabbath day. This would have been their seventh day of the week, Saturday. They were to not do labor. And there's much discussion about this even within the scripture itself. But what would God have been protecting them from? What would have been the good he was trying to preserve in them by giving them the Sabbath command? I think he was trying to protect them against pridefulness. And this is what I, what I mean by this. When, when God gives this command to them, he actually gives a different, this is one example where he actually frames this different in Deuteronomy than he did in Exodus 20. If you've read Exodus 20 before when he says to rest on the Sabbath day, he says the reason to do it is because of how God created He says, God created in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. So you work six days, rest on the seventh day. Here, he grounds this command by telling them, God has rescued you. God has, he has rescued you from slavery in Egypt. And by giving them this command to rest every seventh day, what God is teaching them is to not, is to to think now, We have been granted this freedom to live as they come into this land, to live as we want, to to operate as we want. Back in Egypt, no days off, right? Pharaoh was even cruelly making us make more bricks with less material. He was just slave driving us, literally. We could not rest. We didn't even have an opportunity to it. And now God is saying, I have freed you all. Like, you can do what you want now in the land, but will you rest one day out of the week? Or will you continue in your your prideful, whether you realize it or not, your prideful belief that provision is all based on you? That provision is all based on your elbow grease, your uh, burning candles at both ends, your hard work, your strategy. Will you continue to believe that or will you trust me to provide for you? The one who rescued you, will you trust me or not? And he's trying to free us in this command, trying to free his people in this command from this prideful belief that we must provide for ourselves. That we are ultimately responsible for the fate of our life and to remember, no, he is, and I can rest, I can trust him. Sixth, or the fifth commandment comes in verse 16. This is one of parents' favorite one about honoring your father and mother that we break out with children sometimes, uh, and rightfully so. But this was a command not given just to little kids, right? This is a command given to this whole nation, most of whom would not have been little kids, right? He's saying, honor your parents. Why would he say that? It's not just to flatter parents and make life easier for them, right? It was to protect something. It's to, to preserve something. And I, I think this command simply is a protection against youthful arrogance and a protection against generational fracturing, right? Like there's a temptation. Kids do need to hear this. 
the command to honor your father and mother. All of us in this room who've lived into adulthood know that temptation to disrespect our parents, right? To, to think they are dumb, to think they don't know what they're talking about, and we can arrogantly start to undermine them and think, I don't need to listen to them. I shouldn't listen to them. How foolish they are, and most all of us in the room come to a point where we realize we were wrong, right? This is a kindness of God even when we're young to say, honor your mom and dad. Like even when you're tempted otherwise, don't be so prideful to think they have nothing to teach you, that they have nothing to, to give you. They do, and you should listen to them. And if we don't do that, if we undermine the authority of our parents, even as adults, if we do this, what starts to happen is this generational fracturing, right? Can you imagine going into this land that they have fought for, that God's given to them, and just a generation or two in, there's parents just fighting with kids and they, and they had to live together in households a lot of times. There's just erosion of social stability in their family, right? God is trying to preserve this generational interconnectedness between children and the parents who have gone before them. He's not just trying to control little kids. He's trying to give a respect and a generational bondedness together for his people. The, set, the sixth commandment is in verse 17. God says, you shall not murder. And this command is much more than just a a prohibition of murder. I I think what God is trying to protect his people from here is a devaluing of human life. Right? And do we not need to hear that as a society today? Like, just think of the abortion issue, for example. Like, it, it is a slippery slope when we start to think killing is okay. In any context, that we start to, to think that it is okay, that it is a slippery slope. They're, they're, that is a real thing. Slippery slopes really do exist. Like when we start to devalue human life or we think that it is okay to murder in situation X, then we slowly start to uphold this respect, even for people we disagree with, even for people who are enemies to us, that we are to not murder them. We did not create them. Their life is not in our hands. God is trying to preserve a respect for the life that he has given. The seventh through the ninth commandments, I want to just lump together for the sake of time, verses 18 through 20. These are commands to not commit adultery, to not steal, and to not bear false witness against our neighbor. There's some over, these are all distinct, obviously, but there's overlap here where I think in, in prohibiting these things, saying no to these things, God is trying to protect against social unraveling. He's trying to protect against this, this growing, this reality that could grow in a nation of distrust in families or in society that could undermine the stability of a society that could lead to injustice where people are just all trying to grab for what's theirs and, and claw for what they can get and, and start to not care about uh, what is ethical, about what is right, about the image bearers who are their spouse or their neighbor, Right? And we, I think, we have seen these things take place, the danger of these things take place in, the, in our own lives or in the lives of people we know if we would pause and look at. That when we don't do these things, it does start to have an effect. That there's a reason God gives these commands. How many in the room could testify, which don't raise your hand, but how many could testify? Because verse 18 is about much more than just adultery, as we're going to see what Jesus says about it in a moment. How many in the room could testify to the, the corrosive power that lust has in our hearts? That, that we, we sometimes lust after certain people or things and pursue them, and we think they're freeing, 
and they are enslaving. Like we become deeper enmeshed in them. We become more consumed by them. It is a kindness of God to say, don't do that. He's not just trying to curve your joy and your fun. Like he is protecting you from further enslavement. He's trying to keep you free. How many of us have lived through experiences where we realize when we bear false witness, when we lie, lies snowball, don't they? Like we start to become trapped in that. We start to have to keep track of who I said what to and what they think. And it becomes enslaving for us to lie. It is much safer and freer and better for us to tell the truth. God's not just trying to, to be a killjoy. He's trying to protect us. Lying is like quicksand, right? Like we, we step into it and we just, the more we try to wiggle out of it, the deeper we get. Truth telling is safer. Truth telling is healthier, better for us as individuals and for us as a society, Right? These commandments are for our good. Like God was not just trying to control, he's trying to help. He's trying to protect his people. And we should try to see them as such, right? We should try to see the commands of God not as burdensome. First John 5, 3, the apostle John said, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. But he was trying to say these commandments of God, starting here in the rest of scripture, are for your good. They're not to be burdens, just weights that you wish could be off of you, but they're for your benefit if you would see them that way. Uh, That God is looking out for you. He's looking out for us. It is no wonder in Deuteronomy over and over and over, as Moses is giving them this law, he's saying that it may go well with you. That, right? That appeared even a few times in today's text. Like, if you all will live this way, it will go better in life. Like, God is trying to not just make everything easy, but life functions better when we live the way that God calls us to live. And so we would be wise, as Christians even today, to try to know the Ten Commandments, to try to learn them, to try to think, what is God communicating through these things? How can I actually try to live these out? Because it's for our good. It is for God's protection to us. I'm thankful our kids on Wednesday nights, even this week, in the next several weeks into the new year, are going to be learning about the Ten Commandments. Uh, they, they use a catechism on Wednesday nights, and starting this week in God's providence, they're starting to learn about the law and what it is, what it says, what it means, what, why it's a good thing for us. So kids, you can look forward to that. The third and last surprising thing I want to point out in this text, and this is very important, that you can see in the Ten Commandments themselves, it's not laying something over it, it's reading it as it is, as it was originally given. The third surprising thing would be this, would be motivation behind action. Motivation behind action. What I'm getting at with this is that God was after much more than just behavior in giving the Ten Commandments. He was trying to address the hearts of his people. Right? And you can see that in the last commandment and in the first commandment especially. So if you look at the last commandment, the 10th one, verse 21, this is a, if you notice it, this is very different from all the commandments that have come before it, from 2 to 9. The 10th commandment, he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That is different, right? It still is, you shall not, but what's he saying to not do? What he's saying to not do isn't an action, it's an internal reality, right? It's a desire that is inside of a person that other people may not ever even know. Other people might not ever even see or be aware of. He's saying, don't covet. 
Don't desire what's not yours. Right? So it's like with this last commandment, God is cutting through all the externals, these commands that he's given, and he's cutting right to our heart, right to your heart, and saying, do not covet what I have not given to you. Like, don't desire what is someone else's that is not yours. God is, is zeroing in on the heart. And this, he has said earlier, that may feel weird if you're attentive, in verse 9 he had described himself as a jealous God like wanting something. But jealousy was God mentioned in verse 9 as God wanting something that is his, right? Worship, glory, that should belong to God. God should be jealous for that. What he's commanding here is when we think about things that aren't ours and we want them, we long for them, we crave for those things, we have these desires inside of us to, to have something that is not ours. And it's interesting that he leaves this commandment for last because I think some of those commandments that come before it, disrespecting parents, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, how many of those things are downstream from coveting? Right? Where there's something we want and we're willing to compromise things to get it. Right? We're willing to do wrong things in order to get that thing that we sinfully want. God, in the giving of the law, was after more than just behavior modification. Right? He, he is wanting to come. No accident, I think, that the first command, the last one, addresses our hearts. What's that first command? Was have no other gods before me. Right? That's very abstract, but that is huge. That's kind of like this umbrella under which all of life falls, is have no other gods before me. And so God is zeroing in on our heart with the last command and with that first command. He's saying, everything in your life, like inside, outside, every part of you should be about worshiping me. Like he's not after just behavior and checking boxes of ethics and morals. He is after the hearts and lives holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy he wants us, Right? And it's no wonder then, when, as you keep reading through the book of Deuteronomy, as we preach through it, you're going to see over and over in Deuteronomy, this heartbeat of the Old Testament, that God speaks about the hearts of his people. God calls them not just to obey him, but to love him. Right? Internal thing. That's, that's what God is calling forth is love. Even in verse 9 and 10 of today's text, uh, if, if you notice that, that statement where he talks about he's a jealous God, he says he visits iniquity of fathers on the children of the third and fourth generations of those who, what do they say, hate me, right? Not just those who disobey me, but those who hate me. And then he keeps saying, verse 10, he says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Like God is, is calling us to look at a dividing line of heart. Or do you hate me or do you love me? Even Not just do you do the right things outwardly, but at a heart level, do you love me? Do you orient your heart and, and life around me? And even through Deuteronomy, you'll see that the prophets pick that up. They regularly are calling God's people to say, God wants more than just your sacrifices. God wants more than just your money. Like God wants your heart. He wants mercy to flow out of you. He wants love, repentance to flow out of you. God is after our hearts. And Jesus, read the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to reference the Sermon on the Mount a bunch of times as we go through Deuteronomy. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And after you've read through Deuteronomy some, that thing will just explode with significance to you. You read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and watch what Jesus does. 
He picks this up. Because Jesus knew back at Mount Sinai, God was after more than just behavior. That God wanted hearts that were changed, hearts that were obedient. You read Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And a couple times he verbatim quotes the Ten Commandments. He says, you've heard it was said, do not murder. And basically, like, people then thought, well, I've not killed people. Like, I'm good with that commandment. Then he zeroes on and says, but you hate your brother in your heart. And he's saying that is just as bad. That's deserving of hell. And he says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And people think, I've never cheated on my wife or husband. Got that one. And Jesus turns right around to us prideful people and says, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in, her, in his heart has already committed adultery. But he's saying Jesus is getting beyond just externals. He knew the law from the beginning was to view our hearts, to expose our hearts, to see what even at a desire level, at a, at a private thought level, what are you thinking? What are you wanting? And so the law has always been more than just about action. It was about our hearts. It's about our motivations. These commandments are for our good. They're for our benefit. But as we read these laws, as we start to actually think, what is the depth of what God calls me to in this? It can actually be kind of frightening. Like when we start to realize, man, it's more than just me not cheating on my spouse, more than me just not lying in court, more than me just uh, not doing X, Y, and Z, that I have a whole heart that needs to obey, a whole, I should have no other gods before him ever. When we start to, to hear and feel the weight of that, the law actually can start to feel like a terrifying thing to us. Because it exposes us, it starts to show us, man, how guilty we are, how undeserving we are. The law is supposed to, in some ways, do that. It's not just a roadmap of how to live. It's also supposed to be a mirror of sorts to ourselves to say, whoa. Like, I thought that I was really righteous, but the more I think about this, the more I realize the depth of my sin, the more I realize how rebellious I am, how disrespectful I am to God, how much I have treat him casually, how I disrespect other people, how I lie, how I lust in my heart, how I'm angry even though I don't kill. Like what we, It should become a mirror to us to see ourselves rightly, but Satan would love to throw that mirror in your face and say, see, you are terrible. Like you disobey God in ways you don't even realize, and you're never going to find the bottom of it. Like you're always going to find more in that sinful heart of yours. And he would love to just throw that mirror in our face and just let us sit in shame, let us sit in guilt of how wrong and evil we are. But praise God, the law can be more than just a mirror. It can also be a window through which we see someone else who has done it perfectly, right? Then when we read the law, we read the weight of these things that are called forth from God's people, and we think, none of us do this. We can know there is one person who has. Like there is one person who truly had no other gods before him. And it's Jesus. There is one man who honored his father and mother. Read the beginning of Luke. It is fascinating. Uh, he, he honors his father and mother perfectly. There is one man who never would bear false witness. Who would never steal. Who kept the spirit of the Sabbath and kept it holy. There is one man who did all of these things rightly. Who never looked at a woman with lustful intent in his heart. And his name is Jesus. And as we read the law, we can see, be impressed with him, how he has obeyed these things. 
But the law can also be a mirror because we're going to see as we go through Deuteronomy, disobedience brings judgment. There's wrath and anger of God towards sin that has to be meted out. And when we see that perfect one who's lived for us, we also see at the end of his life that he took our sin upon himself. Even the stuff we don't even realize, the stuff we don't see in the mirror yet, he took it upon himself. And he was crushed. He was put to death at the hand of God the Father at the cross. Our sin was fully laid upon him so that it might be fully removed from us. Right? And we can rejoice in that, that, that we are, though we are guilty, our guilt has been laid upon Christ. And though we are sinful, our sin has been paid for through Christ. And God raised him back up from the dead on the third day because he had been that perfect law keeper. Right? He raised him up as a reward to him, as a, an approval of him. And he invites us sin. That is good news. That should make your heart sing. That should make your heart soar. That as you see the sinful self in the mirror of the law, you can look through it as a window and see the righteous one, Jesus, who has died, lived for you and died for you and been raised for you. But when we look at that mirror, sometimes we start thinking, I cannot do this. Like, I cannot live this out. I, I, I can't do it. I have such a hard heart. I, I, I can't seem to obey. I can't overcome these things. What God calls forth from us over and over again is repentance of our sin and faith in his son, Jesus. And as we do that, he grants us forgiveness and then he gives us his spirit to actually change us into people who can do these things. Not perfectly, but people who can. And I came across a quote I want to end with and then we'll sing. Uh, This was from George Herbert. He's a poet uh, from long ago that I really enjoy. And he wrote a poem called The Sinner. And I thought that this was kind of apropos way he ended his Um, poem called The Sinner. In light of the hardness of heart that we feel in ourselves sometimes, this inability to change, and then the fact that God, like we saw, wrote on tablets of stone here at Mount Sinai, like miraculously, powerfully wrote on stone tablets. He ended his poem called The Sinner this way, and I'd especially encourage you if you are not a Christian today and you're feeling the weight of the hardness of your heart I want you to hear this prayer that he poetically prayed to God. He said, And though my hard heart scarce to thee can groan, remember that thou once did write in stone. I love that. It's like he's saying, my heart can barely even like muster a groan to you. Like I have this hard heart within me. But he's reminding himself and he's calling forth God saying, I know you wrote on those stone tablets. Your your finger could, could melt stone. You can melt my hard heart as well. And if you ask the Lord to do that, he will. He does not turn away anyone who comes to him through Christ. Amen? If we ask him, he forgives. He receives. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song together. But thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you for being attentive. Uh, Let me pray, and then we will sing a song together.